0: Welcome to Wellversed where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast.
1: I'm going to jump right in. I'm eager to introduce to you Dr. Katerina Lindley. She uh, doesn't come from the US, so she practices medicine now in the, near the Dallas-Fort Worth area. But prior to that, she was raised in um well, I'll let her tell you where she was raised and her struggle having to get freed from communism. And then she's gonna speak on an extremely important topic. I'll introduce it, but first let's have her talk a little bit about her personal life. So you'll know she understands what totalitarianism looks like. And uh, gives she she has extra credibility on this topic. So Katerina uh, Lindley, Dr. Katerina Lindley that is, we're so honored to have you on tonight. Tell us a little bit about yourself and then I'm gonna introduce the theme.
2: Well, thank you all for having me tonight. Um, I was born in Yugoslavia, and um, I lived under Josip Broz Tito until the eighty when he died, and then for about ten years we had a period of unrest where different parties were trying to figure out who's going to come in control. And when I was eighteen, I actually left uh, Yugoslavia, and um, because the war was starting, the Balkan War. And I went, I left and um, lived in Italy, England, and eventually came to the States, went to college here, medical school, now raising my children in Texas and things like that. So someone like me understands um, the bigger picture of what has happened in the past three years, because it has been about this global response, uh, totalitarian overtaking of the different governments and uh, trying to control people through fear, coercion, and um, different mandates.
1: I was meeting on Friday at Liberty University with a team of people gonna help me uh, research and help write uh, uh, another book that I'm gonna put out, well-versed volume two, it's going to be. And I I was amazed that the number of chapter titles we would have now that didn't exist three years ago and one of those that we're going to be, and we're also doing a children's version and a youth version of well to try to help youth and children understand uh, the biblical principles of governance. But one of the chapter tiles that came up was this phrase, medical freedom. I never heard anybody use medical freedom three years ago. But now we know exactly what it is. There is a powerful organization globally called WHO, WHO, World Health Organization, established in 1948 by the United Nations that is trying to control everything we do in terms of personal decisions and our health. Dr. Lindley, uh, talk to us about this. How can we regain medical freedom? How did we lose it? Tell us the story on this about who, how it came into being and what it's doing today. Thank you again for being with us. Educate us if you would.
2: Thank you. So, um, WHO was started after the World War in 1947, and it was uh, created to be a health arm of the United Nations. The charge was to improve the health uh, globally and allow people to be in charge of their own health. Um, Their constitution was based on the concept that all people were born equal with with basic inviolable uh, rights. Um, it was initially funded by the member state countries, and funds were allocated based on the GDP of the country. But recently we've seen, and if you actually go on the WHO uh, website, you can see the list of their donors. I actually have a little cheat sheet. So number one donor currently for WHO is Germany, then Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, United States of America is third, UK is second. Um there is a European Commission and then Gavi Alliance. And Gavi Alliance is also another initiative by uh, Melinda uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So we changed from this uh, idea of funding it from the state members to actually being funded by private uh, entities and some states. Um, sorry, my children are home, it's Sunday night. So the priority of WHO have also changed because of that funding. They went from the community center care to commodity-based approach that follows the interest of the donors. And it's very important to notice these public-private partnerships like Gavi Foundation, CP, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or Wellcome Trust. So during the pandemic, uh, what we've seen is that uh, many of these entities worked with, uh, in partnership with WHO and manage many aspects of this global response. I would say for me, one of the first things I've noticed that was a little bit out of control is this global synchronized lockstep approach to everything. Um, I would say that I've never seen countries be so united in trying to control the lives of people as it's happened these past three years and kind of WHO led the charge with that. So what is happening now? Why are we looking closely at WHO? The problem is that WHO is trying to gain more um, control and more um, authority when it comes to future pandemic responses. And they're trying to do that in two ways. One is pandemic treaty and the other one is amendments to the IHRs. So let's just talk a little bit about pandemic treaty first because that one is not immediate danger, I would say. It's definitely something to keep on our radar and be aware of and make sure that our legislators are aware of, but it's not this immediate danger. So pandemic treaty, in March of uh, 2021, the 25 states of the different governments, including UK, European Union, United States, they all came together and said, we need to do something, we need to respond better, we need to have this treaty so that we can protect uh, the world from future health crisis. And in their view, this was an opportunity for to come together as a global community for peaceful cooperation that extends beyond the crisis. So in December of 21, they put this uh, governing body, uh, they went to the World Health Assembly and started negotiating and drafting the pandemic uh, treaty that would actually essentially give WHO more powers and would even give them um, rights to interfere with the way countries respond to different pandemics in their regions. Currently, uh, they will bring these negotiations in May, this year, in May 21st to 30 they're gonna meet during the assembly. So they're gonna bring these negotiations in, they're gonna go over them. And then next year in 2024, they will um, vote, whether they are uh, gonna go forward with the pandemic treaty or not. As far as we're concerned, for pandemic treaties to be incorporated into United States um, laws, um, they, they need two thirds of a Senate to ratify it. So I don't have this immediate concern with the pandemic treaty. It's definitely something to keep on the radar, be aware, make sure that our legislators understand it's happening. Something that's actually more dangerous, something that's actually immediate concern are these IHRs, International Health Regulations. So for those of you who don't know, International Health Regulations um, have first been adopted in 1969 and most recently amended in 2005. So currently we function under the 2005 IHRs. IHR is a legally binding international law that covers measures for, for preventing the transnational spread of infectious diseases. So I hear a lot of pushback on IHRs and people say there's nothing we need to worry about. We have a constitution, we have bill of rights. I get that. But this is an international law that we already adopted. The question is how they're going to try to incorporate it. And that's something that I do feel are, constitutional lawyers and legislators need to look deeper into. So the purpose and scope of the IHR is to prevent, protect against control, and provide a public health response to the international spread of the disease. We currently have some amendments that are being proposed they just negotiated over them in january and they need 50 percent of the world health assembly to approve these ihrs and then once they are approved at the who it will go to specific countries to be ratified by their countries the concern is that these um, proposed uh, amendments will actually empower WHO even more to control the pandemic of the individual member states. Uh, One of the things that they've done in article three, they actually even changed their own language from with full respect for dignity, human rights and fundamental freedoms of persons to equity, coherence and inclusivity. Implying that there is a hierarchy of development that defines humans rights instead of looking at human rights by themselves. So that's one of the first things, and those are type of the words equity, coherence, inclusivity are seen in this new social era that we are facing now. Do you have any questions so far? Because there's a lot that I covered.
1: Yeah, I I do. First on the Senate, uh, the two thirds vote of the Senate needed to pass a treaty I had heard in uh, someone I interviewed the Foreign Fair Network that possibly it was the intentionality of this current administration to bypass the required two thirds vote of the Senate to approve a a treaty and change this language from treaty to agreement, more like an executive order, but thinking it would still be binding on the US. Have you heard anything like that at all?
2: No, I haven't heard that, but the, re- the way they're trying to bypass the treaty is actually these IHRs, because okay. the IHR is already international law that we've adopted. So that's why there is a big, this big push to change some of the amendments that would give uh, WHO actually more control than they currently have.
1: And what way did the, when you said we, uh, we've adopted the IHR on that process, how is the U.S., how is it formally... Adopted by, for example, the U.S. of A. Uh, is that a House and Senate vote, uh, or, or how how does that get? How does that become obligatory, m- mandated, and legally binding on the U.S. without a a vote of our Congress, or has it already has that?
2: So, you know, I'm not a lawyer, and this is that's why I always keep on saying and trying to engage more of the lawyers when it comes to this issue. From 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 what I understand when the uh, international health regulations, when they were amended in 2005, that was when we actually adopted them as part of the international law, one of the laws that we uh, worked with other countries and different organizations to. So So now with these new amendments, they would have to do it again. It will not just be, um, you know, they will not just, the amendments need to be accepted by the member state as well. It's not, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find the word, it's not like a fait accompli, but at the same time, because we are bound by the international law, there is a little bit of um, this gray zone that I think we need our legislators to truly look into and make sure that there is no way that the administration itself will be able to uh, bypass the legislation.
1: do, do we, Maybe we don't know on this. In 1959, when the IHRs were originally approved, uh, did that, re- it, obviously, that would be something coming through the United Nations, I presume, but I- at what point, did, did Congress formally approve the IHRs? Uh, what binds it to the United States? Uh, maybe maybe that's not, I mean, that's out of your zone, but... Um, we need to find out if Congress approved that in 1959. Is that the way we were bound to it? I'm not sure how else we'd be bound to it unless it was approved Senate uh, vote on a treaty. And then how does it get amended in 2005? Who had to prove that? Because uh, legislatively, that's where we have to work if we can uh, avoid this. Now, I may be asking questions. I recognize you're an expert in the medical, not the legal field. So I may be asking questions outside of your area and we can bring somebody on to do that. But do you have any insights on that before we go on?
2: I don't. And I actually, I, I would love for you to uh, probably consult a good constitutional lawyer more than anything. And a uh, uh, couple of legislators who are looking into it, I think they would have better answer than me. But the, the IHRs were first adopted in '69 as part of the international binding law. That's as far as I can find. I tried to look into it, but I really don't understand all the legal issues when it comes to how they're going to implement them. And then they amended them in 2005, and that was also adopted by the United States. Now there is a new attempt to amend the IHRs. And if for whatever reason, whichever venue or vehicle they use, if we actually approve these amendments, these new amendments will will give WHO almost unlimited powers. And I'll go over those um, next when we talk about it. So
1: it was 1969, uh, not, not, I misbe- not 1959. Yeah.
2: It was oh. 69 the first time when they were introduced and then they were amended in 2005.
1: Okay. Oh, very good. Well, thank you for the information. I'm going to turn you loose and let you continue on. I, I am going to ask you to repeat one more time. When they changed the phrasing recently, that phrasing, they cut out mm-hmm. the word freedom and went with equity coherence and
2: so it and, was um full respect for the dignity human rights and fundamental freedom of persons and they're changing that to equity coherence and inclusivity
1: yeah those are those when you find those words cropping up you always know what's coming after that yeah. yes exactly We'll continue right on. Uh, this is very helpful to know. So our, our status right now in all this is that the um, the the thing that we need to be watching most now for is the uh, international health regulations, uh, as opposed to the the treaty as such. So, yes. uh, tell us a little bit more about that and how we go about how we go about make trying to make a difference. I assume contacting our legislature Later authorities is, is a major aspect.
2: Yes, and Representative Chiproy introduced bill. Um, I forget the number of the bill, but the bill is to actually defund WHO, and that's definitely one of the venues to go.
1: I'm gonna have that Holly, Holly unmute for a moment. I'm not gonna say her last name on purpose, nor her, where she lives or anything. But uh, Holly, do you mind just referencing what you have posted here on a private chat here uh, about what is located in Maryland, what is that uh, center that's located there Holly are you able to say Holly you may be you may be muted You
2: are muted right
0: now Oh I'm so sorry yes, it's called the Global Pandemic Prevention Center and it would essentially be I think similar to the World Health Organization but it would be similar to um, basically where people that have been to the World Economic Forum, people that are, uh, that work at the NIH, people that work in the De- um, Department of Defense, uh, public health leaders, global health leaders, scientists. I believe Governor Hogan and Kelly Schultz, uh, our local county executive, different people like that, but people from all over the world in addition to the local people that work at federal agencies would have control, basically, uh, if there was a the next pandemic And it's located in rockville maryland you can uh, google it in there at um let's see here www.connect to my.org pandemic center the global pandemic prevention
1: okay i'm gonna go thank you thank you holly i'm gonna go back to you dr lindley um tell us a little bit more what this means in practical implication let's suppose uh let's suppose one of my children gets COVID, and i'm seeking the treatment that I desire. What are the implications of this, these international health regulations? What are the practical implications for my family, for me and my family as we make decisions for our respective health situations?
2: Well, the proposed amendment will actually allow WHO to control any country's response to, um, any new pandemics so for example before some of these changes uh you know they changed some of the wording from non-binding to binding recommendations so if who recommends something from this point on it will be binding and it will mandate members to follow uh, the recommendation instead instead of considering them so currently when who recommends something we can consider it but we don't have to actually abide by it. Now we have mostly abided by it, but we were not bound by doing it. Uh, With new proposed amendments, we would have to actually implement those. So uh, states will accept the WHO as the authority in international public health emergency over their own ministries of health. So if you have a, a, let's say there is some kind of outbreak in Brazil and we have, there are six regional directors. So let's say there is an outbreak somewhere in South America. The WHO can uh, say to that area and say, the area can say, you know what, this doesn't look like an outbreak, but the WHO says, yes, it is. And then they come in and take over. And then they dictate to the rest of the world what's happening. So for example, um, Like I said, it will change this definition of the public health emergency of international concern to include actual and potential concern deemed by the director general. So some of the powers that director general and currently director general is Dr. Tedros, uh, those powers would be detention of individuals, restriction of travel, the forcing of health interventions, testing, inoculation, and requirement to undergo medical examination. The WHO will also have power to designate opinions or information as misinformation or disinformation and require the countries to intervene and stop such expression and dissemination. So we've seen a little bit of that happening within our own Ministry of Truth that they try to form, but now instead our government controlling that, the WHO can control that. Obviously these changes interfere with US constitution and are not compatible with the universal declaration of human rights, but that is not gonna stop them. So it's very important for people to be aware of these changes and amendments because after declaring an emergency, the director general will also have the power to instruct governments to provide WHO and other countries with resources, funds and commodities. So countries will also give the power to WHO over their patent law, intellectual property, control of manufacturing, commodities, anything that uh, the Director General deems relevant to the potential or actual health problems. So um, there is a lot more to this level of control, but essentially, If amendments are passed, the Director General and WHO would have power over the actual country to decide how we respond, what do we do, how do we treat uh, any new vaccinations or any new treatments and things like that. So essentially the countries will lose their own sovereignty and WHO would uh, be able to control what's happening during the pandemic.
1: Yeah, loss of sovereignty, quite a sobering phrase right there. The loss of national sovereignty is the the key issue. Uh, Medicine, food, energy, those are the key things. uh, Energy, travel, uh, that's where the controls are coming down at a a remarkable rate at the present time. So uh, did I understand you a moment ago that these, the IHR, the International Health Regulations, are in direct violation to the United Nations' own Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Is that what I heard you say?
2: Some parts of it, especially the the language changes and things like
1: that. Yeah, that's interesting because the Universal Declaration of Human Rights there's 30 of them, I believe. They're posted proudly on the walls of the United Nations,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, to see an organization within the United Nations turn around and violate the very universal declarations. Uh, that they proudly put out, sort of back in their founding at the time of their founding uh, is really quite amazing. What describe for me in practical terms what it means? And once again, I said if my me and my family decide that we want a particular treatment for a particular illness that we're suffering from, and uh, what does it mean for me? And what does it mean for? Is suppose you are my doctor, and and you as my doctor and I agree on the treatment for me for the treatment for my underage child. But uh, Dr. Tedros, the general director, the director general, he doesn't agree with you and he doesn't agree with me. What does that mean practically for me, my own health or my child's health? Or what does it mean for you as a practicing physician?
2: So to a certain extent, it will be actually similar to what happened in some states where uh, physicians were not allowed to prescribe medications that we thought would help people. I think we can actually go from the beginning. Um, Someone like me recognized very early on what's happening. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, I knew from the beginning that this was all a hoax or whatever. And I always say, no, you didn't, you know, it was scary for everyone in the beginning. But someone like me who actually grew up in communism, so if you speak for people from Cuba or Venezuela, they'll tell you that we saw things. And what we saw was these kind of untangible things and fear. And then, you know, they asked us to isolate, stay away from going to church, going to school, going to work, because they needed to put us in a certain state of mind where we're going to start complying. So you have fear, isolation, coercion, and then uh, threats at the end. Those are type of uh, tactics to use in totalitarian regimes. And uh, from the beginning, things that didn't make sense to me, first thing I recognized was fear. But from medical standpoint, what didn't make sense to me is the fact that they told physicians, stand back, don't do anything tell patients to go to the hospital when they can't breathe, and that's that. Now, even if you don't know what you're dealing with, there's always things you can do. If someone is short of breath because, you know, they're congested or they're having inflammation or asthma type attacks, you can do different things, steroids, breathing treatments. If they're having you know, uh, inflammation sets. So there's a lot of stuff we can do outside of those two medications that we're specifically told not to give. In some states, they really, really kind of tightened uh, the screws on the doctors and some doctors have lost their licenses, been threatened with losing the licenses if they prescribe hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin or different things that we were told not to. In other states where you have a little bit more freedom, it was allowed for physicians to discuss with their patients what to do and how to do it. So if WHO has this power over the way we respond, they will have powers over our medical boards, over our licenses. And if any of us step out of line, we will lose the license. And it's going to be almost like, you know, um, it's really... Very interesting because, you know, I obviously grew up th- after the World War II, but I heard stories from my grandma and uh, from my um, parents. And we watched a lot of mo- movies, you know, with partisans winning and the whole thing. So they had this huge underground, right? Or French Revolution, they had their own underground. We're going to have to live in, the, in a world where people are truly totally not free. And uh, you know, I always say to people, it was never about the virus, it was always about the mandate. A country like the United States, that's a free country. Once they mandated for us to do something so that we can have a job and provide for our families, that's when we lost our freedom. So having WHO step in, we will lose individual freedoms on, on deciding what's best for our families, even financial, because uh, what they are trying to do and you'll see that if you read anything about WAF or WHL, they're trying to do, introduce digital passports. And then once you have digital passports, eventually you can start doing digital scoring social systems. If you do this, you can do that. So we are going down this road that United States of America shouldn't even consider.
1: Uh, I, I wanted you to restate the, I think you said four, three or four terms when you, you've watched totalitarianism for communist regime, state control. The first you said was fear. The second you said was isolation.
2: And then it was uh, bargaining and threatening. And I'll explain why I mean by that. So fear was watching um, what was happening in China, people dying on the street, and then watching what was happening in ICUs in New York. And isolation is when they told us to stay home. People were getting arrested. I believe it was in Mississippi. They had their cars parked outside of the churches. Um, uh, so that's fear and isolation. And then it came the bargaining. If you stay six feet apart, you can stay in line to go to the groceries or elderly were allowed to go a couple hours earlier. Or if you wear your mask, you can, uh, start doing things eventually. was if you get vaccinated, you can, um, uh, travel or whatever until it came to the point you will get vaccinated, which is the threatening phase, or you will lose your job.
1: I would like you to talk a little bit more about the underground. You had a grandma and you had parents who talked to you about the war, what it was like in the countries. There, there's a, a popular book out now called Live Not by Lies, and it, it identifies how people survived in the underground during the communist control of various countries. Small groups, networks, deep family ties is how they survive, it's, it's, it's a classic, everyone ought to read it, live not by li- lies, if you want to be prepared for what could be coming, appears to be coming on much of the world, including the United States of America, that being the case, can you talk to me a little bit, doctor, about the nature of underground, how, how do you survive, what are the stories you heard from your grandma, from your parents, that could be helpful to us, contemporary america just so you'll know dr linden when we started the uh we opened the the national gathering for prayer and repentance in washington dc last wednesday morning at 6 30 a.m with a room that was packed to capacity people came to pray because they knew the condition of america and what i said to them was what i've said on this the people in the world prayer network family heard me say so many times that the, the the children of israel in the northern kingdom did not possibly believe that god could use a wicked nation like assyria to come and take them out the southern kingdom failed to learn from that they did not possibly believe that god could permit somebody like Babylon to come in and take them out because of their disobedience and pr- present-day america wallowing in the sin that we're wallowing in contemporary americans uh, your neighbors who live to your right or to your left or across the street have no grasp of the possibility that god could use a wicked neighbor Uh, like, for example, a nation who flies a a weather balloon over the entire nation, Uh, that that God could use them to potentially uh, take us out. We just don't think in those categories. We think we're above all that, and we're not. At some point, judgment does come. That being the case, when it does come, then those who are bona fide Yeshua followers, those who are God-fearers, are forced into an underground position Talk to us if you would a little bit about the stories you heard growing up, how you survive in a communist controlled country when you're forced into living underground. What does that mean? What does that look like? Can you help us with that one?
2: So honestly, like Yugoslavia uh, was not as bad as Russia, you know, gulag times and all that. Um, But even, In Yugoslavia when I was younger, you know, we weren't really allowed to discuss that uh, we we go to church because that would mean that, like, you know, your parents could lose a job or promotion and things like that. But the stories I do remember from my grandma uh, is, and this is kind of where it's different this time around. In World War II, um, you know, Yugoslavia, Croatia specifically is Catholic. There were a lot of priests and a lot of churches that actually helped uh, partisans win the war against the Nazi because they uh, sheltered them, uh, they created their own networks and things like that. I would say this time around during this pandemic, what I've observed is churches in general, all faiths did the opposite. Churches actually, mostly were not the haven that they were supposed to be. You know, they closed the doors on people, they enforced these draconian rules that didn't make sense. Uh, some of them required of their parishioners to be vaccinated to attend um, church and uh, services. And I do think that that actually showed a little bit of, um, well, lack of courage, I would say. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, present uh, you know uh, audience uh, excluded, but like you have to question yourself: Did you really? Did everyone do what we were supposed to do the way they, you know God has asked us to do? To do? Did they really serve uh, their parishioners and and the people of faith they have? And churches actually have failed us. And, you know, the biggest people that got. Uh, The um, accused of not doing their job are doctors, right? But when you look at it, actually everyone did not do what we were supposed to do. And that has to do with this fear. You know, um, Dr. Malone talks about fifth generation warfare with the difference between World War II and what's happening now is in World War II, um, Nazi... um, Germany and, uh, you know, and, Sydney, and they actually attacked people and try to take away their freedom straight on. This time around, they didn't do that. They actually tried to accomplish that by making us fear that, uh, you know, things are gonna be worse. You know, we're all gonna die from this uh, virus. And um, they made us see a lot of those, like I said, uh, pictures from China, from New York, And we willingly gave away um, our freedoms one by one slowly. But I think the difference also between now and then was the fact that a lot of leaders in different industries have really um, betrayed their purpose and their mission. So um, the way underground work in those days is people just looked out for themselves. You know, they looked out for their neighbor, they looked out for their family and um, they lived for something greater than themselves. This time around, I think in general, as a human race, as humanity, we become very selfish. We become very, you know, instead gratification type of a society where if we don't see results right away, uh, we kind of give up. We've lost a lot of those values along the way. And it all started with the breakdown of family. Um, people always think this past three years, is this has been happening just these three years. All of a sudden, you know, this whatever is happening, but it's not true. This happened a long time ago. And if you really think about communism, even in Hollywood, when it started, they kind of came out in the open. They were squashed pretty easily, but they never went away. They went dormant. The way they went dormant is they they went into our education system. They attacked our uh, values, our traditions, our families. Then they went after the social issues. So when this thing happened, we were primed for it. And I would say the only way we regain this is by creating that sense of community again. And uh, it needs to be done through, um, through everyone, you know, whether it's the physician, lawyer, pastor, minister, we all have a job to do and we have to remember who we are and why we're doing it.
1: I, I, I can't possibly top it, what you just said with another question. So I'm gonna stop the questioning and we're gonna go right to prayer unless there's something more you want to say. I take copious notes. When any of my guests are talking, and uh, I'm going to summarize what you've just said. The churches have failed us, which is a nice way of saying the pastors have failed us. In most places where the pastors defied the law and they stood, the people responded and started attending their churches. Uh, The churches here in San Diego, up in Orange County, those are the ones I'm most familiar with, where they they stood up against the uh, totalitarianism. The regime, they were rewarded by enough people coming and saying, hey, we're, we're coming to your church because you're open. Uh, one particular church where I spoke in a number of times, uh, I, I signed my books uh, for people as they bought them after I spoke. So I would always ask them, how long have you been at the church? How did you come to this church? Over and over, I heard this church stayed open. My church closed. So I left it. They totally lost respect for pastors who would not stand uh my son in is a pastor and he had people who drove to his church over an hour and then notified him and said we're coming to your church we don't we're not even believers we don't believe what you preach but we're willing to we want to stand with you for standing against this authoritarianism thank you for doing that they weren't even believers they, they self-identified as non-christians and yet they recognized someone willing to stand against totalitarianism uh I, my friend jack hibbs he had people that would drive for an hour or two get a hotel room by his church so he could be there the next morning and uh, so what the doctor properly appropriately pointed out is the failure on so many pastors to be willing to stand in this moment and went right along complied fully and you you are correct now in germany there was those who went along with hitler and then there was the confessing church you can't name me nobody can name for me any of the pastors who went along with hitler but everybody knows the name of Bonhoeffer. Most people know the name of Niemöller. We remember those and Bonhoeffer died. He was hung by a piano wire April the 9th, 1945. I think a week before the allied forces got there to save him. Here's a man who didn't even live to see it yet everybody knows his name. He was willing to stand. He was vindicated by by history. So doctor, you have said a remarkable thing. You said churches have failed us. That's heartbreaking to hear. And then you rec- business leaders, business communities who did not stand and other leaders in our communities. And so we're going to start the prayer time. But in a moment, But I just want to ask you, doctor, I so appreciate your coming on. Is there anything you want to share more or any question I should have asked that I failed to ask that you want to share share before we go right to the prayer time?
2: I just want to say, you know, I get asked a lot of times. Um, what can we do? What? How do we get out of this? And um, the most important thing is to believe in something greater than yourself. To start at your own, in your own home, uh, with your family, with your children, with the school, with the church, with your the town, and create uh, connections. Because uh, no matter how much they have tried to attack us on uh, every level, and they still continue, this is not over. Not even by It's not over at all. You know, people actually are right now going through a little bit of, uh, um, you know, calm before the storm. Almost, me, I would say we're probably in the eye of the hurricane right now where everything's calm and you think you're out of this mess. We're not. they are going to keep on continuing coming after our children. They're going to come after our families. And the way to do it is to create this sense of humanity, community. Remember who you are. Remember those things that you learn from your mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. remember the traditions, the values, um, one of the things that still warms my heart when we moved to Texas, my kids uh first thing they start saying is yes, uh, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, and they didn't do that before just because we lived in Florida and Wisconsin, and they don't do that there, but these little things, you know these little um uh, courtesies that we can do for each other they matter and um, I truly believe that God wins no matter what but he's giving us this chance to do what's right and if we squander it there will be consequences.
1: I'm going to go to uh, Pastor Ned Marmon from Florida to ask what questions he has for Dr. Katerina Lindley. And then, Ned, after you've asked a few questions, uh, then we'll go uh, directly to prayer. Ned, I
3: turn to you. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Jim. Dr. Lindley, it's been wonderful hearing the, uh, just the information you've been giving for us. And uh, I am reminded of the, the recent book. I guess now it's a few years old, at least, Live Not By Lies, which speaks a lot to this. There's another recent book I, I, uh, I read called The End of the World is Just Beginning, Uh, by a gentleman named Peter Zihon. And he speaks to the strong possibility, or at least as he sees it, the inevitability that the globalist, current globalist system is winding down and coming to an end for a variety of reasons that he lays out very well. My question is this, an entity like the WHO and their desire to implement these policies, uh, it requires global cooperation in the event that globalism winds down, and we go back to more of a, a regional uh regional power structure as we had pre-World War II, does that make what the does that make what the, the WHO is attempting to do here? Does it does it make it less possible? Does it end that um, that possibility for them, or does it not affect them at all?
2: I haven't read the book, so I'm just going about what you mentioned, but I don't agree with that at all. I don't think globalism is anywhere close to ending. If anything, they're getting more and more power. And even if you look at the WHO funding, uh, like I said, initially came from the countries and now it's coming from these private organizations. You know, uh, that whole thing with BlackRock and all those other big entities that are possibly having interest in everything that's happening, I I do not see that we're going to go into this regionalism. I think the only way out of this is for each country to remember who they are wow. and be proud of who they are and return to their own core values. And, uh, you know, um, even with what uh, Representative Chip Roy is trying to pass to defund WHO, that's one of the ways to get out of this mess, give them less power and less money. If you look at the... Uh, funding of WHO United States I believe is number three Gavi Foundation is number six but the biggest donor to Gavi Foundation 4.7 billion dollars is United States so there is this interconnection web uh, that's beyond what we can imagine Mm -hmm. so like I said I don't really know much about that book but I don't see that we're going to go to regionalism at all
3: Okay, uh, well, quick question just to follow up with that. Aside from the U.S., where are the major countries backing the WHO financially, pushing them from a policy standpoint?
2: So Germany is number one donor, even about the uh, Bill and Gates Foundation. So Germany is a big one, and actually a lot of uh, new initiative and central bank are in Germany. But, for example, WHO has a contract with the German um company to institute uh universal digital passport so that's number one the other countries are united states uk and eu eu is also heavily invested in what's going to happen and then as part as the private donors go to be uh, melinda bill and gates foundation and then um navi uh not um Gavi foundation mm.
3: Interesting, interesting. And from the US side, and this will be my last question and maybe you'll be able to answer this, maybe not. Um, How, are you aware of what power individual states hold to resist uh, such moves by the WHO? For instance, I'm in the state of Florida, it's been really really just a a phenomenal state and standing for uh, individual liberty and freedom. Uh, It was much different living here through the pandemic. Than it was for many people elsewhere. Uh, a state like mine that's that's presently extremely resilient and willing to push back. How how much hope would they have, in your opinion, uh, when pushed by perhaps some policy decisions by? Or, I'm sorry, from from an empowered WHO and maybe a secondary pandemic scenario.
2: So I do know that Wyoming is uh, one of their representatives proposing a law to uh, not allow WHO powers to actually interfere with uh, the um, health department response. I do know, again, you know, I'm a doctor, so this is just an opinion, take it as it is. I do know that uh, states definitely have uh, certain powers that uh, We see the federal powers, but then there's some federal uh, powers that uh, they have over us. So I would say uh, it's a start. It's definitely something that each state should consider to not allow WHO to interfere with the function of the state matters and things like that. Is it going to make a difference? Hopefully, maybe, but it's definitely worth trying. And you guys do have a great governor who I'm sure is actually on top of a lot of these issues already.
3: Thank you, Doctor Lindley. Well, if there's nothing else, I will and I will uh, initiate the start of prayer. And just so, especially when I'm going to break yes, in, uh,
1: uh, just a clarification: when she said we have a great governor, she wasn't speaking to me, who live in California, Gavin Newsom. She was referring to you, Ned. Just for clarification, for audience sake, <laughs> as, as if that was needed. But <laughs> I, I, I thought we ought to do one thing of an action point. I keep saying we're going to prayer, and I keep interrupting myself. That is an action point. Uh, Doctor, can you tell us what we should do in educating our, our senators, our state senator, our state assemblyman or representative, our two senators from our state, and our member of Congress. Do you have in writing, or is there a website we could go to that we have in writing the verbiage that we ought to use when contacting elected officials?
2: So I'm actually trying to look up, um, like I said, uh, one of the representatives in Wyoming is proposing a bill not to let WHO interfere with any function of uh, future responses when it comes to their state. I think that's definitely a bill that probably every state should look at, and uh, you can print it out and give a copy to someone in your um, house, in the state house and see if they would be willing to actually write something similar and then pass it through the house and eventually through Senate. Uh, The other bill would be more on the federal level which is the one with Chip Roy and I know Representative Massey and others are working on similar language to completely actually step out from WHO and United Nations because all of these things work together And uh, they're trying to interfere with how the countries will function.
1: We just interviewed uh, Congressman Chip Roy a couple weeks ago. So he is currently working on another matter. But he's currently on working legislation in this arena, you're saying?
2: Yes, he has a bill. Uh, Chip and I are good friends. And he already introduced the bill to defund WHO.
1: That is good to know. We will have him come back on and maybe have you come back on with him. And so we can take this to the next level. What I will do, uh, World Prayer Network family, is uh, I'll try to get this language from Dr. Lindley or wherever she directs me, and we'll put it on a newsletter. If you're not on our mailing list, go to World Prayer, excuse me, go to wellversedworld.org. Go to uh, wellversedworld.org. Sign up for our newsletter immediately so we can keep you informed of this. I'm going to send out a link to this broadcast that you want to forward to your friends. But in that one, I will attempt to get the documentation of, of the language that ought to be used when you contact whether the state level or federal level for legislation. Anything more on that before we go into prayer, Doctor?
2: Yes, I actually found the bill. It's uh, it's uh, House Bill 0413. I put it in the chat. It's from Wyoming, Representative Jan- uh, Janet Ward. And the specific language that she's using is... Uh, the United States CDC and WHO shall have no jurisdiction in Wyoming, and any requirements, mandates, recommendations, instructions, or guidance provided by either organization shall not be used in this state to justify any mask, vaccine, or medical testing requirement. Else, have no force or effect in Wyoming. So there's just a one bill but it would uh, allow the state to actually decide how they would respond to future pandemic or any other health issues.
1: Almost all of you are on other social media platforms where you're not seeing what she just posted. So it's House Bill 0413, 0413, Wyoming. And I think you said either Senate or Representative uh, Janet Ward, is that what you said?
2: It's a Representative Ward, yes.
1: Representative Janet Ward. So if you'll Google that, folks, you'll have it quicker than what I can get it to you. Uh, Thank you, doctor, uh, for that.
2: I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that Well-Versed is a 501c3
0: tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too.
2: Thank you for listening to the Well-Versed Podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.